The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening from New York City. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another edition of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the topics that has um, been in the forefront of some of our programs over the past couple of years is the question of relevance of archaeology and um, the specific aspect of issues that are contemporary in which archaeology can play a major role. One of those topics which unfortunately a lot of people don't seem to be aware of, and I'm speaking not just uh, about our, the archaeological community, but also the lay public, is climate change. And climate change has major repercussions uh, for understanding the timeline of developments and the general context of how climates change through archaeology because archaeological evidence clearly indicates developments in the past and with an emphasis on environment and archaeology and the relationship of ancient landscapes. uh, Archaeologists have teamed with numerous natural scientists including climatologists, to develop reliable models, I would say, at this point, of climate change in the past and how they affected human behavior. A more compelling issue in the present time is the actual uh, effect of climate change on preservation, because as we've discussed also in the recent past, um, preservation is now one of the major foci of, of archaeology and cultural resources are of course, um, in danger by climate change and a variety of different factors that intermingle to create uh, potentially destructive situations in the contemporary cultural resources landscape across the world and specifically as we've been talking about recently in North America. My guest today is Dr. Leslie Hartzell, who is the chief of the Cultural Resources Division for the state of uh, California, um, not not uh, of, of the park, the California State Park System, excuse me. And she is also the department's tribal liaison and the departmental preservation officer. And uh, what goes on in California uh, is very often a predictor of what will happen in other parts of the country, in part because it is the most populous state and because of a lot of progressive uh, legislation and a lot of progressive perspectives that that state has developed in the past. So it's uh, my pleasure to introduce Dr. Leslie Hartzell to the program. Thank you for appearing. Oh, it's my pleasure too. Thank you. So why don't you give us a little bit of background as to what your charge is in the Parks Department and how it specifically pertains to cultural resources. Uh, Absolutely. Um, We have in California over 1.6 million acres in California state parks that we're responsible for managing. And our mission specifically is about preserving and protecting our natural and cultural resources. It's a huge mandate, a huge area uh, with over 280 state parks at present and uh, 
extremely diverse landscape that we're responsible for. So we touch on everything from some of the earliest dated sites in North America uh, all the way up to the most recent historic sites that we've added to the National Register. So let's go back in time a little bit. How did cultural resources gain a foothold in parks? And why don't you give us a little bit of background on the history of how your charge developed, really? Um, we began, our, well, our earliest date with state parks is 1864 with the Yosemite Grant. Um, that's what we like to hold as our anchor with the first um, park lands re- responsible under a state mandate. But really, it, it got its start in the early part of the 20th century with our first park, um, Big Basin Redwoods State Park, and the preservation movement to save the redwoods, save the trees. Um, but within that, we've had an early interest in historic properties. Um, our first parks that came under the National Historic Landmark Act in 1960 um, were right out of the gate from California. The first Customs House was the founding of the state um, early government uh, after Spanish-Mexican and California rule, and uh, those were some of our first uh, offerings to the national uh, landscape for our history here. So a bit of everything. And uh, when when was the park actually? In the, you say the park was initiated for this purpose in the, in 1960. Uh, the uh, the first listings for National Historic Landmark sites came out of California right with the legislation at a national level. But our earlier parks all had historic sites and resources. So um, I'm just trying to think of some of the examples that most of the audience might be familiar with. The first gold discovery site at Marshall Gold um, Discovery State Historic Park in Coloma, uh, where uh, Sutter's Mill was and the first uh, gold rush uh, efforts and word got out and everyone came in. So that's one of our early parks. Um, other ones that people would probably be familiar with are uh, Donner Memorial, where the Donner Party encamped and had the horrible uh, winter of entrapment. Uh, in 1846-47. So um, many famous sites early on recognized uh, in the late 1890s uh, with first monuments and then becoming state parks over time. Um, So that movement really took off for recognizing historical sites probably first and then later recognition of cultural sites like archaeological sites that we would recognize today, Indian Grinding Rock, Chasse, in the foothills, um, California Great Lands um, uh, added more recently. Tremendous resources throughout, uh, even if they were put as parks because of their natural resource values, all of these acreage have cultural landscape history and uh, prehistory with them. And of course, there was a great impetus uh, when Teddy Roosevelt spent all that time in Yosemite and developed uh, essentially a good part of his model for the National Park Service based on, on what, what what he saw in Yosemite way back in the early part of the 20th century as well, right? Right, and our history with the National Park Service is intimately entwined, as as your uh, viewers are probably, or your listeners are aware. Um, the National Park Service worked during the Great Depression um, extensively in California, um, places like La Parisima Mission with uh, National Park Service representatives working hand-in-hand to basically do the archaeology to rebuild um, that mission site. It's one of the most um, beautiful, reconstructed, purposely reconstructed, uh, uh, restored mission sites that we have in the state. Uh, that was done with architects, landscape architects, archaeologists, all working collaboratively, of course, with the young CCC crews to learn the trades to rebuild um, this beautiful adobe mission. Uh, we've had National Park Service involvement in Big Basin Redwoods and their efforts to uh, develop the campground programs and where the administrative buildings go and just the landscape that we're also familiar with with any National Park Service site we have in California state parks, that same partnership with the beautiful log and timber and natural rock uh, construction, all of that history is tied together with Californians and the National Park Service. 
I wasn't aware, actually, about the extent of California's participation in the CCC and in the WPA projects. I guess it must have been very extensive. Uh, most of us here in the eastern part of the country, we were more familiar with what happened in the southeast and to a lesser degree in the Mississippi Basin. Um, but I know that uh, a lot of those sites uh, out west and specifically some of the sites, uh, the, the gold rush sites, uh, was sort of launched into prominence as a result of that work, right? Uh, yes, it did. Um, you have to imagine, you know, we, we know the story of the grape, Grapes of Wrath, <laughs> classic literature, um, so many unemployed during the Depression, and, and there were major efforts to take the unemployed population in California and put them to work. Um, the doctoral research that I did in uh, near Bakersfield, California, was an effort to employ 200 unemployed oil fill workers. That's our early oil fills down in that part of the southern San Joaquin Valley and the Central Valley of California. And uh, they found large lakeshore, huge 20-foot high uh, middens, shell middens, and they brought archaeologists from the universities, UC Berkeley, uh, the Southwest Museum in Los Angeles area, and the Smithsonian uh, to work uh, and supervise all of these unemployed oil field workers doing these massive, large-scale excavations. And that publication is quite famous out of the Smithsonian's uh, in the 1940s, uh, reporting on that massive effort. Our California State Parks has a property near that area, and I was able to work in that region um, and reanalyze the Smithsonian's data and do some additional testing to bring it up to speed and uh, bring that story back to life, if you will, from so many decades ago. You you bring up that whole question of uh, the the Great Migration West during the Depression, uh, the Grapes of Wrath story, where a lot of uh, of the unemployed that that moved out there basically to do agricultural work were many of them actually put to work in the WPA projects and the I'm CCC. I'm not as familiar with the agricultural workers being employed. This was sort of the long-term population of uh, married uh, men that were given jobs, and the WPA is sort of heavy labor. The oil oil prices, I guess, had dropped, and there were many unemployed in that area. Um, right. It wasn't actually the agricultural workers, at least in this one instance that I'm describing. No, I'm just talking about the yeah. great wave of migrations uh -huh. that was eventually very saturated, as we know. You, you just didn't mm -hmm. didn't have enough jobs for everybody. I assume that uh, that some of those folks uh, ended up working on some of the CCC projects, but, you know, I don't uh, yeah, and we know like at La Prisma, the CCC workers, the young men that came, they were pulling them out of the cities. They were pulling them out of Los Angeles. They were in situations where they were young, um, poor uh, men who need, the family needed money. The family couldn't afford to continue to feed them and, and so on. So they took the burden off the families by having the young men come work on the project like at La Prisma. And uh -huh. um, and then send the money home. Like most of the pay went back to the family, so that the mother and any other children at home would have some income. Um, it's fascinating when you look at how their work contributed to what we see today as a, at our park. But it in, was very vital bridge to the community uh, at the time. And we will be back with our guest, Dr. Leslie Hartzell. Uh, the Chief of Cultural Resources at the uh, California Department of Parks. After these words, stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. 
Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest today is Dr. Leslie Hartzell, who is the Chief of the Cultural Resources Division of the Department of Parks for the State of California, and she also serves as a Tribal Liaison and the Departmental Preservation Officer. Dr. Hartzell, I would like to ask you how your charge and how the charge of of California State Parks has changed in response to the evolving... uh, shall we say, significance of cultural resources and the implementation of legislation and how that entire system functions from the perspective of the parks, how they go about uh, supervising and uh, monitoring uh, archaeological projects in the areas that you control. Uh, Sure. There's a couple things that I'd like to point out. Uh, The first is we are under what's called the Natural Resources Agency in the state of California. And you can tell from the name of it, natural resources, that the focus is natural resources and you wonder where cultural resources fits within that. But the system has historically had within that the Department of Parks and Recreation under the Natural Resources Agency. And historically, cultural resources were a section within the natural resources uh, component of parks. And many years ago, we switched out to make sure that cultural resources were equivalent in our structure to natural resources. And I think that's probably the most uh, high-water mark that we had, that there was a recognition that uh, as much as our valued resources across our acreage and parks uh, were important for the natural resource values, they were equally important for the cultural resource values. So that was a big one. Uh, the second aspect is that in recent years, uh, the governor and legislature and uh, citizens of California have really noted that it's important that tribal relations with uh, federally recognized and even uh, those that are non-federally recognized tribes in California uh, constitute an important part of our process for and um, when we evaluate projects under what we call the California Environmental Quality Act, if there's an undertaking of a project that might affect resources, including most recently under legislation passed this past year, Assembly Bill 52, that um, looks at uh, uh, including tribal consultations as a standard part of our CEQA process, our environmental process for reviewing projects, and tribes are to be consulted, and their tribal cultural resources are to be considered uh, as part of this process now. That's a landmark uh, innovation that California has just uh, moved forward with. Um, yeah, do you have a question on that one? Well, you know, one of the uh, one of the items that I've noticed, uh, having done a little bit of work out there, is that there is a very strong connection between the involvement of Native Americans and archaeological and cultural resources work that most projects that I've been familiar with out that way have had, for example, monitoring projects have had uh, Native Americans involved in, in all aspects of that, being involved in the monitoring system, providing critical input 
on archaeological background, cultural resources, familiarity, and uh, sensitivity to, obviously, tribal sites and uh, traditional cultural properties. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how, how that system evolved, because it's been in place for quite a while, and I think uh, California has the most stringent requirements for Native American involvement. I, I think you're correct, um, and it's certainly been leading um, in involvement of tribes in consultations for projects. And I think what's interesting is our department um, in 2007 set forward a tribal consultation policy, and in that we said that all of our projects and our work, not just if we were going to have ground disturbance potential effects, but, but really consultations about how we interpret and present um, uh, stories and histories of tribes and uh, current contemporary information about tribal partners in our museum exhibits, uh, on our interpretive panels, on a trail that you might walk on if you're visiting a park. All of that needed to be done in consultation with tribes. Uh, that is now something that the state is doing writ large. All agencies and departments now um, under AB 52, this new assembly bill, uh, require that consultation happens. And so all of the departments uh, and agencies in the state now have to have consultation policies with tribes. So I think that it hasn't gotten the news across the country that it deserves. It's, it's really quite remarkable. And it means that instead of just looking at tribal partners as someone that you bring on to an archaeological site when you're excavating, where they stand and monitor along with the archaeologist doing the work, um, it's no longer just that sort of at the end of the process. It's really from the beginning when you're conceiving of a project that you're now in discussions with those tribes that step forward and say, we would like to be at the table to consult on, on projects and undertakings that you have in mind. And that includes planning, not just when you're going to actually put a shovel in the ground. So that's quite revolutionary in my mind. Tribal involvement and Native American involvement certainly got a boost in NAGPRA, when NAGPRA kicked in in 1990. Uh, do you see that there is an increasing involvement and uh, participation of Native American groups in the actual archaeology process uh, so that they're being trained to do that kind of work and that there's more formal education in that respect? Uh, yes, I, I, I agree. There, there are. It's been wonderful to see the, the younger generations come up and uh, from tribal experiences where maybe elders were the only ones that uh, we might have seen or talked to, and now you've got uh, many young people that are coming through the universities and working side by side. Uh, we know of. Uh, uh, examples of people that are working on PhDs in different programs, um, often in interdisciplinary studies that that cross over with archaeology and uh, wider historic preservation fields, museum studies. And I think NAGPRA was influential in opening the door where museums were required to consult and bring tribal people into the process to actually involve them in uh, discussions of, of uh, material culture and um, sacred objects and items. Um, that it just opened a door that was really necessary to be opened, and now we're seeing since 1990, um, after these many decades have passed, much more open and uh, regular routine uh, dialogues um, at our museum facilities, not just state parks, but throughout the state uh, with tribal groups, much more beyond discussions about the treatment of um, uh, human remains and associated uh, or unassociated grave goods, but really um, much more discussion about objects of cultural patrimony uh, and discussions about collaboration on materials uh, and displays and exhibits. You know, the, the entire question of patrimony is, is, is critical. And uh, as, as, as we both know, it's, it's now about 25 years old in a formal sense. Um, how has that changed and what do you see as being the uh, major issues right now with NAGPRA and with patrimony? We know that the original issue that, that brought this to the forefront was the fact that a lot of Native groups were upset about the fact that archaeologists were, were digging up uh, burials and, and uh, Native American remains, and there was that entire controversy about uh, their right to do that and the fact that museums were still repositories of Native American 
American remains that had been in storage for over 100 years and hadn't been looked at. How has the NAGPRA issue sort of taken on a new face since um, since NAGPRA was initiated? Because I know in California you have just so many different uh, permutations of what's been going on. Give us a little sort of update on that. Well, I'd say the the main thing is um, what I just briefly mentioned, which is that we've sort of moved beyond, um, after 25 years, um, <laughs> most of the human remains have been repatriated or in the process of, of having final repatriation, uh, removal from the museum holdings. Um, and I think what I'm seeing now is just an interest in moving into discussions about other material items and, and cultural items. So it might be, you know, discussions about basketry collections or pottery or, you know, depending on where you are in the state and what the issues are. Um, and, and more looking at objects that the museums might have collected over the previous years or been given through donations from some years ago uh, that turn out to be ceremonial items. So we're, we're um, I think, past in some parts, not entirely, but past in some parts the more contentious, difficult subjects uh, and discussions about Native American remains and holdings. And now we're moving into these other areas that uh, allow for... Um, you know, exploration of new partnerships that we can have and new discussions about what are um, tribal cultural resources now under this new law, for instance. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the TCP, the Traditional Cultural Properties, which in California is a, a very big deal, and uh, becomes sort of a murky issue because traditional cultural properties can be as small as a, as a grave site and as large as a ceremonial mountain. And how is that getting uh, identified and how is that being dealt with on the, uh, empir- in the empirical sense and especially by, by, by parks? Um, well, with the passage of AB 52, we have a new term. So we've normally talked about historical resources with uh, the, sort of the federal and state statutes, uh, talking about archaeological sites, built environments, historic sites, building structures, so on. But now with tribal cultural resources, which is different than what you just mentioned with the traditional cultural places, under tribal cultural resources, this new term under our California Environmental Quality Act, it's referring to the site features, places, landscapes, kind of capturing a bit more of um, what you were just referring to, sacred places or objects. And it's saying which are of cultural value to the tribe. Mm -hmm. So we're asking for the tribe's input on that. What are those tribal cultural resources from their perspective and is either on or eligible for the California Historical Register, Historic Register, or a local historic register. So it has this combination, sort of like in partnership. So it's tribes identifying those cultural resources, which can be, as you say, anything from something small, uh, object or broad cultural landscape, um, as well as it needs to meet eligibility criteria that we already have well-established for identifying California Historic Register. So you have to both come to agreement on it, which is very interesting. It's going gonna, it's gonna to help broaden up our relationships in a way that hasn't been done even to date. Um, the, the rules for how to do this haven't come yet because this law was just passed, but we're going to be working our way through this. Is there a particular issue that brought this to the fore or a series of issues that brought this to the fore that uh, led you to uh, initiate basically a a new element in the entire question? I I think we've had an administration um, and legislators and uh, uh, I want to say – people working with tribes throughout the state that just sort of brought this forward and there was an acceptance to listening and learning and finding a way forward uh, that was more inclusive of tribes. And I think that's playing out um, in a number of ways that we operate um, within the state, including within state parks. There's more, um, if we wanted to talk about the drought a little bit, there's more involvement with tribes in discussions about the effects of the drought on uh, the exposure of sites from vegetation dieback, uh, lowered water levels. There's just much more engagement, which is, you know, really fabulous to see um, in a way that I hadn't seen when I was working here many years ago in the 1980s. And um, 
to to come back to California after I'd been overseas for some years, um, and to see the progress that's been made to bring tribal people to the table as an equal partner, um, rather than something that we must do. It's it's just a given and an understood that you will sit down with tribes and and tribes can reach to you, you can reach to them. You're in partnership um, in ways to manage and steward the landscape. It's just been fabulous to see happen. And we will be back with our very special guest, Dr. Leslie Hartzell of California Parks, and we're going to focus on this entire question of environmental and climatic change right after these words. Please stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we are discussing uh, the question of environmental change and cultural resource planning uh, with Dr. Leslie Hartzell, who is the Cultural Resources Department Chief for uh, the Department of Parks in, in California, and she is also a tribal liaison and the Departmental Preservation Officer. Um, we have discussed in several programs prior to this what archaeology can teach us about climate change and and uh, certainly the impacts of climate change on human behavior and social organization and a variety of other issues. But right now, the question of contemporary climate change and global warming and the types of issues that are clearly upon us and will require uh, in for lack of a better word, some very major uh, planning at a very later at, at at sort of an advanced stage in this issue is something that has been on the minds of archaeologists and cultural resource managers for quite a while now, and many many states are taking steps to protect resources and to understand the processes that are involved in their systematic destruction. In the West, generally, the question of fire destruction, drought, and uh, certainly along the coast, uh, coastal erosion and relationships to sea level rise, these are all questions 
that have impacted cultural resources managers uh, such as uh, Dr. Hartzell over the past decade, if not more. Uh, Dr. Hartzell, why don't you tell us a little bit about the drought issue in particular and more generally about sort of the uh, sort of gradual, if not accelerated, destruction and danger that sites find themselves uh, are, are currently confronting uh, from the perspective of a manage- manager? Well, in California, as many people in the country are aware, we've had persistent drought, severe drought, the last four years. And the consequence of that is that our vegetation is uh, covered, is reduced. Plants don't have as much moisture. Uh, they're, they're having a harder time making go of it. So where you might have had sites uh, covered uh, by dense vegetation where uh, it wouldn't be terribly visible to most uh, visitors to our parks, um, now there's more site exposure. Uh, I think the other thing that visitors are pretty aware, well aware of are the scenes and photographs from our state reservoirs where there's been, you know, such a huge drawdown of water levels to unprecedented um, uh, reduced amount not seen since the reservoirs were first built and first filled. And that has exposed resources in a way that, um, puts them at risk. Again, the public can see them, access them, trek over to them, uh, want to engage with them <laughs> in uh, perfectly acceptable ways to observe and take photographs, but in other times uh, to conduct uh, themselves in ways that uh, are a threat to the resources through vandalism or actually taking resources. Um, that picture most people have in mind of the lowered water levels and reservoirs, but you need to think about it on a scale across the state where sites are now being exposed uh, to a uh, public eye and also the risks then um, because of the drought of uh, erosion factors or, as you mentioned earlier, fires um, being a potential threat where, where fires are burned through and the resources can be impacted, either damaged severely um, or destroyed depending on whether we're talking about above ground or below or surface. Um, and, uh, again, the threat from erosion from the next rains that come and take the slope away um, or cut through new channels uh, and then transport the resources away, and that information is gone and lost. Well, so you know, mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say please. it's just very serious concerns, and um, we can talk about what we're going to do next because <laughs> this is ongoing. It's, it's now. So, so my question to you here on this is it's, it's now clearly, but it's been going on for a while. Um, what about the systematics of this type of erosion and destruction? I mean, you've, you've obviously been through it for four years and, and longer, but now I think the scale is such that you can understand to a large degree the systematics of this type of destruction. So the next question would be, how do you devise comprehensive programs for preservation and, if necessary, archaeological recovery to prevent vandalism and such things and to, uh, to impede further destruction by either human activity or climate change? How do you go about doing that? Well, the way we're handling this is we're partnering up because we can't handle it alone. Um, I think, of course. Yeah, and, and you hear this repeatedly. You know, you have limited resources. So we've been reaching out. Part of that is working within departments and agencies that have a similar mission. So we might work with what's uh, our Cal Fire um, that handle our fire responses in the state because they have expertise. And so we might make sure that we're partnered up that if a fire is coming through or potentially threatening state parks, we're at the table and in incident command. That's some obvious stuff, just preparation and response protocols with, within agencies and um, within partnerships. Other ways we're doing it are partnering up with universities, for instance, in doing systematic surveys and recordation of properties. We think about uh, the historic gold rush town of Bodie in the eastern Sierra up in the high desert. Um, I want to call it a desert area of 7,000-foot elevation. Very stark, very few, um, actually no trees around, but lots of fire threat, and you've got both archaeological um, sites prehistoric and historic, you've got built standing structures of wood that are left from that mining legacy that's so famous to visitors around the world. And 
those resources are at tremendous risk. Um, we are having less snow cover in the winters. We are having high-velocity winds that rip through that area um, in the wintertime and early transition into spring that the snow used to kind of insulate a little bit um, mm-hmm. and protect. Now those buildings are being subject to high winds that are shearing them. Literally, even with new roofing and efforts to stabilize, the buildings can twist in the wind and, and um, be a a greater risk. So it's always been a challenge to preserve a place like that. Um, it's even more so under these conditions. Um, you also have all the grass around that area, and we have to work with the Bureau of Land Management, which is an adjacent major landowner around the park, um, to make sure that we have a coordinated fire response plan. Are, how are we uh, keeping the vegetation down? How are we monitoring uh, uh, the impacts and making sure that we have an effective solution if we get a wildfire come through there? so that we don't lose the entire park. Um, That's the same on the coast, where we have resources that, you know, we might have thought historically were, here's one archaeological site, and then up here are ways, there's another archaeological site. Well, now with the reduced vegetation, we can see that they're um, all joining together. And where we have that situation, what we're trying to do is work with a program called the California Archaeological Site Stewardship Program, (coughs) CASIP, And they train volunteers working with professional archaeologists in our state parks and in other institutions. Federal agencies use these as well in California. And we work with the Society of California Archaeology through this CASIP program. And we train volunteers to do monitoring. We were talking, uh, Dr. Hartzell, about uh, the steps that you're taking in management of drought-related issues and how you were coordinating with a variety of different agencies and the systematics of all that. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about how that's all working and how you're uh, developing cooperative arrangements with other agencies that are confronting similar issues in cultural resources management? One of the ways we're doing it is partnering up with universities. Um, right now, we have an agreement with the University of California at Merced, and they are assisting us at Bodie State Historic Park, our gold rush site in the upper eastern Sierra deserts, uh, east, east side, Great Basin Range side. And this um, iconic, uh, internationally famous gold rush uh, site that's considered like a gold, ghost town um, has any number of historic resources that are at threat because of climate change and our uh, our drought um, effects with the lowered snow level in the winters. So UC Merced has been coming in and doing 3D scanning uh, with us to map uh, the resources so that we can better understand what sorts of management and maintenance work is needed on the buildings and prioritize that work effort. Um, they have been... Um, coming in with teams of people and then working in collaboration with uh, contractors that we've hired to do uh, aerial uh, uh, surveys over the sites uh, using um, drones. Um, and also we've had uh, fixed-wing um, uh, piloted planes also do terrain surveys. And then we're using this mass of data that we've gathered for any number of purposes, from collections management, the collections that are uh, on display in the building to understand their state and condition, to the buildings themselves, interiors and exteriors, to the landscapes to understand what the vegetation cover means and where it's sparse and where we might be at risk for fire and might need to do some uh, 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 clearing of grass so that we wouldn't have a burn accidentally come through with a wildfire that would take that resource out. So um, any number of examples like that where we're partnering with universities in different parts of the state like we are at UC, with UC Merced at um, Bodie. Um, when, you, when you use the universities, I mean, are you uh, dealing with uh, their archaeology and anthropology departments or are you using specialists in remote sensing and geomorphology and related disciplines? Um, it's a combination. Many of the universities already have these interdisciplinary programs, and UC Merced is one of those. They work uh-huh. collaboratively um, with their colleagues. So it's not just the archaeologists, um, but it's also the people that are the computer modeling specialists and also the natural resource specialists. So it, they sort of come with a whole suite of people for us to work with now, which is fabulous. And so you now have uh, interdisciplinary teams uh, in in action, if you will, 
and you're able to develop uh, cooperative arrangements that you know, we used to have trouble with. I mean, we used to have uh, issues, especially in the universities, of bringing some of these interdisciplinary groups together, yeah. even though had, they did have overlapping interests. But this seems to be sort of an emergency situation in which uh, it's kind of coming together, right? Well, and I think that's just the trend at the universities. UC Berkeley, our University of California at Berkeley, um, has similar programs that are interdisciplinary. So pretty much once we've tapped in in one aspect or another, um, be it archaeology, anthropology, um, whatever the need is, um, you're really speaking with a multidisciplinary team. Um, another example from Berkeley is we've had um, paleothnobotanists working with us on some coastal sites up uh, north of Santa Cruz, if you're familiar with our California coast, south of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And um, we've been working with tribal partners um, as well as the university and our state parks, both natural and cultural resource staff, so archaeologists and our um, environmental scientists lead, uh, to remove invasive plants, um, which are prone to fire, uh, plant natives, uh, take out growths that have overgrown, and basically revitalize this uh, valley, which had a historic and prehistoric um, archaeological sites with Amamutsun Connection, which is a tribal partner. And... Um, that is a place where we're working on improving the health of the landscape to make it more resilient against fire and drought effects by sort of, uh, you can't restore it back to some, you know, something 200 years ago because climate has changed, but you can right. at least make it more resilient to threats and effects. And we will be back with our final segment on this very fascinating program on climate change and a specific focus on California and the management of cultural resources in response to that right after these words. Please stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth Reality 21st Century Archaeology. And the 21st Century Archaeology is an especially uh, significant element in the discussion we're having today. We are talking specifically about uh, this, the California state park systems and the uh, methods that are being implemented 
to deal with and to mitigate the effects of drought in California and how the state park system is working in conjunction with other agencies to deal with these matters. My guest is Dr. Leslie Hartzell, who is the chief of the Cultural Resources Division of Parks. Uh, I was going to ask you, and, and this is a question that you know all of us who are dealing with climate change in our own ways here in the East, of course, we have hurricanes that uh, tend to... Uh, expose and uh, destabilize cultural resource environments. How do you deal with actually sensitizing, if you will, will the first responders to issues for cultural resource management? Because we found that when this became a major issue, people would just look at us blankly and say, you know, we have to save, we have to save the environment. Uh, What does archaeology have to do with that? What do you, how, how do you approach that? Well, we had a recent series of fires, as many of you might be aware. The Valley and Butte fires were burning uh, last month uh, in different parts of Northern California. And both of those were threatening our state parks and certainly did um, do horrendous damage. And there was, you know, unfortunate loss of life and billions of dollars, it looks like, in damage to the communities surrounding these parklands. But the point for us was, um, besides being um, mutual support responders, so our our, uh, rangers, our law enforcement officials helped evacuate areas and uh, support the populations in the surrounding communities around the parks. But beyond that, um, trying to get a seat at the table, um, I think, has actually gotten easier. So when... Hmm. Events like this happen, there's incident command, there's a structure that we're all trained in, and so we, we put our staff through a, what we call the REEDS training, a resource um, advisor training. So it's a basic fire training um, with certification, and that we keep our staff that are willing to participate in this trained on this. And we send our REEDS advisor when an event like this happens um, to the incident command, and we, we basically communicate with GIS layers, right? So we want to convey to them, here are our resource, um, here are confidential records, but here are our resource uh, site information, our inventory data about the resources that are in the area. And the last um, incident, we had a concern because there was a, our park had a historic silver mining site in it. And it also has prehistoric sites up this hillside. And there was a concern that this fire was going to flash over in the middle of the night, uh, this parkland, and we needed to be prepared. So we literally send someone with a drunk jump drive with the data on it to mm-hmm. incident command, report in, um, get themselves attached to the incident command post, hand that over to the person running the computer that's uh, on site, and that helps inform the uh, first responders as to what they need to be aware of. And we obviously, you know, recognize uh life safety threats are paramount in situations like that. But at the same time, if they've got this information, they can look and plan and strategize. So if you need to take a bulldozer into an area and cut a fire line, better that they cut around the historic resources if they can. And in that case, avoid um, silver mining um, sites where there's there's mining danger, right? You know, where you don't want your equipment to go down into any of these historic openings, you know, pits, um, and you don't want anyone to be injured from that. So you want to make sure that you've conveyed that information correctly to incident command. And they are so appreciative when you show up with that data so that they can plug it in and plan better. Um, and that's really how we've done it. We've just gotten ourselves trained and we're just one of the other people at the table sharing data, sharing information, so that it's routine now. We only have a, a couple of minutes left. Um, this has been a fascinating discussion. I think the message that you're presenting is that uh, despite the fact that this destruction is unabated and probably will proceed further, high technology to some degree comes to the rescue. Is that correct? Technology is part of the answer, but it's only as good as the inventory data that it's based on. And so that means it behooves us to make sure that we know where our sites are. We've updated and monitored and uh, improved the records and made sure that that data is in the GIS layers that we can give to incident command. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to end this fascinating discussion. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Leslie Hartzell, of uh, the Chief of Cultural Resources, uh, California Department of Parks. And until next time, this is Joe Sheldon-Ryan signing off. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Sheldon-Ryan. 
Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.